I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Hey now, mama, don't you worry your head. Let's make the most of this time in this world we Telltale Heart by my guest today on the program, Michael McDermott. Let me tell you a little bit about Michael McDermott. But before I do that, let me take you back to 1991. I was a junior in college, and this may surprise you, but I was running the radio station. I know, you were thinking I was playing football and uh, dating cheerleaders, but, you know, I wasn't. I was at the radio station well, pretty much 98% of the time that I was in college and, uh, you know, at the radio station, there were no cheerleaders. It was just me, a bunch of records, and good old-fashioned American collegiate loneliness. <laughs> I think now you understand why I've never gone to any of my college reunions. But back to our story. Those were the days where a record company sent us boxes of CDs weekly. Actually, daily. I was the music director, and my desk literally had stacks of CDs on it. Anyway, one day a package came in, and inside that package were two CDs. One was by Adam Schmidt. One was by Michael McDermott. Now, the Adam Schmidt CD was called World So Bright, and the Michael McDermott CD was called 620 West Surf. Both looked cool. So how did I decide which one to listen to first? Well, that's easy. I looked at the Michael McDermott CD, and I went... That guy has the same haircut as I do. He's better looking, but he's giving me hope that I can pull this haircut off. So I'm going to keep at it. And I did. All I'm saying is, my entry point into Michael McDermott started with a haircut. Google the album cover and you'll see why Michael McDermott was able to pull it off. And then Google me and you'll see why I wasn't. At any rate, that's my story about Michael McDermott. Well, that's where it begins. But... All it took was about 10 seconds of listening to that album, and I became a lifelong fan. So yes, it started with a haircut, but it ended up being about the songs. Now, let me tell you about Michael McDermott long before that haircut. Trust your instinct to the end, though you can render no reason, Emerson once wrote. Well, in the case of the Chicago-born singer-songwriter Michael McDermott, his instinct at around 17 or 18 was to do one of two things— be a musician, or become a priest. Obviously, he went with the former, but truth be told, the ensuing 25 years or so were about as far away from being a priest as you could get. I'll explain all that in a minute, but first, a little history. Michael McDermott was raised as a good Irish Catholic boy in Orland Park, a suburban Cook County village just outside of Chicago. McDermott grew up listening to singer-songwriters like Dylan and Springsteen, as well as local folk hero Mike Jordan. He also listened to U2 and had a particular obsession with The Cure's The Head on the Door album, which he says he listened to thousands of times. Now, by age 20, McDermott had an arsenal of songs and he was ready to go. He tells the story about how he was signed to the Warner subsidiary Giant at age 21, so I'll leave that story to him. But let me sum it up this way. 
By age 21, Michael McDermott was living in Los Angeles with a half a million dollar record contract. He was all over MTV, and Rolling Stone were hailing him as the new American songwriting hero. By contrast, when I was 21, I was sitting by myself in a college radio station deciding which albums to listen to based on the performer's haircuts. But on the bright side, as a football player, at least I was dating all those cheerleaders. But back to our story. So, there was a lot of excitement about Michael McDermott, but his debut album, 620 West Surf, got lost in the storm of grunge that hit radio like a typhoon. And McDermott's momentum was summarily stolen from him virtually overnight. But Michael McDermott pressed on. He put out Gethsemane in 1993, he went to a Cubs game with Stephen King, and not only did King quote McDermott's lyrics in his 1994 novel Insomnia, he wrote the liner notes for McDermott's 1996 self-titled album. Find them online. They are worth a read, and they're too long to read here, but here is one of my favorite moments. Quote, Not since I first heard Springsteen singing Rosalita had I heard someone who excited me so much as a listener, who turned my dials so high, who just made me feel so fucking happy to have ears. So it probably sounds like McDermott was back on track, right? Well, uh, he wasn't. I mean, he was, but he wasn't. I mean, sure, he kept putting out records, and they were all great. But Michael McDermott's life was kind of a mess. Michael McDermott, in spite of his creative output that was yielding an orchard of memorable songs, was in the throes of addiction. And his addiction led him to some awfully dark places. Rather than giving you a guided tour of those places, let me give you the highlights from the low points. There were strippers with scissors, mobsters with warnings, overdoses, jail stints, rabid binges, bar fights, Samoan gunrunners, and bleary nights that bled into blearier days and back into nights that nearly finished our hero off. But they didn't. As Stereo Embers Magazine's David Porter once observed, Michael McDermott has been destroyed by his own count many times, but he's never been defeated. He married fiddle player Heather Horton in 2009, got sober in 2014, and now, back in Illinois, he and Horton are raising their daughter Rain in the house he grew up in. Michael McDermott has had a great career. He's performed the national anthem at Wrigley Field, he's been name-checked in two Stephen King novels, He's recorded with Dave Navarro and R.E.M. producer Don Dixon. He's put out 15-plus albums, including his new one, Orphans. And he has a huge following in Europe, especially in Italy. And here's a fun fact. Remember that movie Rounders? Well, that was based on McDermott's experiences at underground poker games. But here's the thing. Michael McDermott is such an enormous presence, one character wasn't sufficient to catalog his misadventures. So... They split him into two. The Matt Damon character's name is Mike McDermott. Meanwhile, Ed Norton's character is named Lester Murphy. McDermott is actually Michael's middle name. His last name is really Murphy. That's right. He's Michael Murphy. See, I told you he was a good Irish Catholic boy. Listen, for all of the things Michael McDermott has done, the most important thing is he survived. In this conversation, you'll find that he's open, he's funny, and he looks back on his past with unflinching honesty. And he's just a hell of a guy. Literate, self-deprecating, spirited, and warm, Michael McDermott is a true American original. So, enjoy this conversation with me and Michael McDermott, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. arrive kind of fully formed your identity your sound you knew who you were and i'm kind of wondering like did you always know and how early was it that you figured out this is this is who i am well i i don't know i don't, I don't know uh there's that's a great question it, it i don't know if i did you know you're only 21 or whatever and and uh and i was i was just steeped in what i was doing and just very committed and i don't I don't know if that was necessarily me. I guess, you know, 30 years later, I could say, I guess it was. I didn't know that at the time. Um, but, yeah, I was just, you know, I, when everybody else, like, so 
how I got started was I wasn't, you know, playing in bars doing cover songs of whatever was on the radio. I was in bars doing songs of Irish folk music, uh, you know, songs so old you didn't even know who wrote them. They were just traditional. And uh, so, I mean, that was a great training ground, you know, that, of songs that were written not to fulfill some kind of record deal, but there were songs that were written because they had, had to be or they were soldiers or they were hunger strikers or whatever. And, like, I that, that's how I learned how to write songs was, like, learning from those guys as opposed to, you know, Nelly Vanilli or whatever was, you know, in 1991, whatever was, you know, on the radio. So it was, uh, that's kind of, like, I think I just, I went to a good school, I guess you could say. Well, yeah. And you, and you, now you grew up in, did you, where did you, which suburb of, in Chicago or was it a suburb of Chicago? In a suburb of Chicago, Orland Park. And you talking about going back as a professor, I'm calling you from an apartment building where I'm living because I'm actually moving back into the house I grew up in and talk about being weird. That's fucking weird. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I, that was never part of the dream. You know, nobody's dream is like, and then, you know, I'll get sober and I'll move into my dad's house. You know, like that, that's never part of the, you know, the narrative. I, that was never, I never curated my life for that, but um, we're remodeling it. I, you know, I was, it was left to me, of course, completely underwater. And uh, uh, so I said, well, I, I could do it, I guess, you know, it is a house and I don't have a house. And, but, you know, I'd have to redo it in such a way that I, you know, that I'd have to you know, rid it of ghosts of sorts, you know, but keep some of the bones of it. So anyway, so that's what I, that's where I grew up. And I'm, I'm now, uh, you know, a half a mile from where I grew up, like, right this second. Yeah. You know, I noticed with your work, like 620 West Surf or the Westies or uh, the record before Orphans, I mean, the, the iconography of Chicago – of of Illinois in general uh, is very sort of front and center yes. in your work. Is that something that you're conscious of, and and is that does that have to do with the that sort of Illinois identity that you that you identify with? It is. I think you know, like David Mamet. You know, like he was a Chicago guy, and he still, you know, you can still tell it's what he writes. You know, I think it's just an in a, a breeding thing. You know, I you know, you say you're from Chicago, you bleed cubby blue and. And all those things, you know, and it's true. You know, it's it's a funny identity. Like, you know, I lived in Los Angeles. I lived in Nashville and I lived in New York. And, uh, you know, that was always kind of the dream. But, like, there is some kind of magnetic force that is here. I mean, Mammoth lives in L.A. now, I think. But, um, but yeah, so there's something, you know, and you know how it is. San Francisco is a very similar city. You know, there's something really... I don't know. I mean, in, in San Francisco, I'd love to talk to you. We don't have to do it right this second, but about the, the transformation that city's gone through. And I only know it from, you know, reading about it. And I was, you know, like the 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 way the the the, peep, the locals are being kind of pushed out of the city and all that. It's a, you know, it's a troubling thing. Chicago's not doing that. I mean, obviously, it's very expensive to live here, but um, you know, it's unfortunate that that had has to come to that. Well, I mean, like you know, all the all the weirdos and the freaks and the artists and the people that I identify with are all you know they can't afford to live in San Francisco anymore. No, yeah, even the flower shops or the you know the was, was there some famous like flower markets or whatever? Yeah, and, you know, and, and they're just you know like everybody's just getting getting booted out of there, you know. And uh, but that's I mean, San Francisco is very similar. I don't know when I think of San Francisco, I think of Kerouac, you know, and and. Uh, uh, you know, more more than I think of the Grateful Dead. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, Eric Ginsburg or uh, uh, Burroughs, you know, like that whole thing is is what lives in my head uh, um, in about San Francisco. But I think it, those days are just gone, aren't they? And the same thing can be said about Chicago, too. I mean, there's no, you know, it's a, the most segregated city in the country. Uh, you know, you don't see black people in Chicago, not the places that, you know, I seem to go for whatever reason. Like, it's just weird. You know, it's just a very... Very weird, you know, and they said, oh, my God, the violence in Chicago. Like, I, I never see it, you know. Um, just, uh, it's just, well, obviously strange times. So. Hey, Alex, what do you teach? I teach English. So, so I teach, like, oh, wow. you know, I'm like, uh, if uh, if a freshman comes in and they got to take, like, critical thinking, I'm the guy they run into. <laughs> That's awesome, though. That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's I cool. It. I like to I like to ask them the, the tough questions. Um, and we have, you know, we have fun. Uh but I've had a couple of uh, a couple of Chicago students, but mostly mo- a lot of Californians. It seems like we have. A what lot are your thoughts on on education in general now? Because I have a, an eight year old, and man, I got to tell you, uh, not to get too off subject, but like you know, I just I don't get it. I don't under, under, even understand a lot of the the stuff they're doing. You know, the, uh, and, and the, the iPads. You know, for an eight year old, I mean, yeah. don't we kind of know the science? 
on on devices in front of your face for hours at a time, and they give they just give them to these kids. Yeah. Like, wait, wait, no, 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 no. You're gonna know in a very. I, it's not even like we're gonna find out. Oh, that's bad for you. We know that now. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? You're indoctrinating these kids with a terrible habit. Like, here's crack cocaine. You know. Well. I mean, do you think your first record would have come out at 21 if you'd had an iPad? I mean, I wouldn't have left the house. No way. Yeah. No, I wouldn't have done anything. And I know. Pre-porn? Come on. I know. I know. I would have <laughs> been like, I would have been like downloading Husker Du bootlegs and watching porn. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> all day long. Yeah, all day and long. ordering food and stuff from Amazon that you don't need. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I know. And dude, I'm... I'm so clean and sober five years now, just as of January. But now my compulsion is like that fucking like click. Hey, what about this Stones '81 tour shirt? Yeah, that'd be good. Like it's just too easy. <laughs> it's just bad for a guy like me. A weak, a weak moral fiber, a weak willed. Man, it's just all oh, this addiction is everywhere. <laughs> do you try to limit the screen time for your for your child? Well, we do. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure, her. But it's still like, you know, and then you want to do something like, okay, you know, and then we have no, no electronic Sunday at the house. But, you know, that's hard. And, but, you know, it's good. And, she, you know, the funny thing, Alex, is when she goes to a friend that doesn't have an iPad, they have more fun. And I know it sounds very, I sound impossibly old right now, but they, they, they have more fun. And I'm just like, see, you had fun without the iPad. You know, like, and it's like, yeah, I did. You know, like, but <laughs> I don't know if they believe that, but. Um, you know, it is just immediately right home from school, right to the iPad. I'm like, oh, man. Oh, I know. And by uh, the way, yeah. no, no matter what you say, because we're the same age, you're always going to sound impossibly young. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, good. We'll okay. set that as a rule. Okay. Yeah. We're both impossibly young. Yeah. Let's establish yeah. that. Um, the uh, – <laughs> The, one of the things I've always liked about your work is that you never were afraid to kind of stare down the dark stuff. And, mm. you know, you, you mentioned – congratulations, by the way, on, on five years Thank of you. Sober That's yeah. Fantastic. Um, but were you aware – did sometimes – did it ever get too dark where you're like, oh, this, this is too much? Or were you always that brave in terms of staring down those, those demons? Yeah, I, I think I, I think I, uh, I think a lot of it was my own creation. You know, I think I took turns in life that wanted to, you know, go hang out with, you know, Samoan gun runners, you know, and uh, and then they put a gun in your face and you go, ah, I should get out of here. You know, uh, I, I, it was almost like I was an investigative journalist on some level, and then it became my life. And and I was telling my sister actually this morning, she has a son that's. Uh, struggling uh, with uh, addiction. And, uh, and I said to her, when I was first locked up in Cook County, you know, jail, man. And that first night, and I looked around and I thought, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. I don't belong here. And then another voice inside of me said, dude, maybe you do. And, uh, and that's how it was. And like, I went so far down the rabbit hole, I got stuck there, you know? And it, and it's like that, that Hawthorne quote where like no man for any considerable period can wear a face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be true. And that's not exclusive to me. You know, that's, I was, I, at, at such a young age, I didn't know when you say, when we started talking about, did you know who you were? I didn't, I didn't know. I was, I, um, uh, you know, I was like, uh, is it uh, Proteus or uh, the Greek god Proteus, uh, like from Prothesis or whatever? Like I was too – whatever anybody wanted me to be, I was that guy. Like, you know, you wanted me to be a drug addict. You wanted me to be a, a sexual dynamo. You wanted me to be whatever. I mean, I went in every which way. And I did – I went where I – and I joked. I, I go where I'm needed. You know, if somebody wants me to be somebody who uh, is spiritual and religious, I could be that guy. You know, I could be anybody. To anything and it became so I just totally you know lost myself and that I mean that's not exclusive to me I mean people you know there's you you know people that have jobs or one guy in the boardroom one guy in the bar room one guy in the bedroom you know whatever and uh so I think everybody saw I mean it's a it's a you know it's just a it's a constant juggling act and like I think that I finally just got so so tired of it and you know they that's they say in recovery, you get tired of being tired. And that's kind of what it was. And finally, I had no, literally nowhere to go. And, uh, and I tried sobriety several different occasions, and it never worked. And over the years, and, and Stephen King wrote me a letter. And I carried it around with me for years. And I kept it hidden in the scrapbook. And, uh, and you know, there'd be a crack house or whatever. I'd go home, get it, and come back and read it to everybody. And everybody would be like, whoa, Stephen King. Because he wrote me the seven-page letter about addiction, and it's amazing. I always figure if I'm homeless, I'll sell it on eBay. 
And uh, <laughs> but it's amazing. And, and he, uh, anyway, I, I would read it and I'd cry sometimes. And, and, and I just always carried it with me. And finally, you know, my first year sober, I was going through the scrapbook and I hit it and behind a picture. So I went, oh, it's a Stephen King thing. And I read it and I was like, oh man. And it's just it, it, through a different lens, I was able to see it. But what was startling to me, Alex, was I looked at the date and I can't remember the exact date right this second, but it was like November 24th, 1995. And I thought, fuck, like 20, it, like, what is it? Well, uh, 15, yeah, it was 20 years. I was like, 20 years he wrote this. 20 years ago he wrote this. I read this for 20 years without doing anything. And it was just incredible to me. Like, what an idiot. You know, like, and anyway, so I'm, I mean, I'm, I've moved past that sense of total guilt and shame and all that. But, uh, <laughs> but did it get too dark for me? Sorry, I'm so rambling. No. Uh, but yeah, it, it got, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was all dark. I mean, looking back now, it's almost, I can't believe I made it through, you know, some of well, those nights, you know, when you, you'd, you'd hammer up a, a, a comforter over the windows to keep out all light. And that would go on for years, man. You know, I'd stay in dark rooms. I mean, yeah, crazy, crazy shit. Yeah. How were you able to maintain friendships and relationships during that time period? It was just all with other people of like brokenness, you know, people that were spiritually sick. You know, there's a whole community of it. And, you know, quite frankly, I felt there was, a, you know, in some strange way, you went to a Catholic college. I was very Catholic. I mean, I thought about being a priest. I went to, you know, right out of high school, I just went to church every every morning and just thought that was going to lead me in a way. And, and there is more talk about Jesus Christ in crack houses than there are in any chapel in America. And I, and I dare you to dispute that. Because it's just true. And I think those people there, I mean, there, it's, there's such, that's where you're looking, you know, there's every, what do they say? There's a great line. It's um, anybody that knocks on the door of a whorehouse is looking for God. And, uh, and it's true. It, all those people are just broken and they're trying to fill something internally with something externally. There's a brokenness. There's a, a hole that needs to be filled and you seek, you're seeking an external solution to an internal problem. And, and that's, um, that's where the, the chaos comes. And, and it's just, you know, dissatisfaction and disillusionment and all those things. And, uh, um, yeah, that, it, 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 but, you know, I found a great, I mean, I can't believe I made records with, as, as afflicted as I was. But there was a great deal of, I, I got to say, great deal of material in those rooms, you know. Well, I mean, not only did you make records, you make great records. And, and from a composition standpoint, they were incredibly accomplished. I mean, you were doing good work. Yeah, surprisingly. I, I do wish I... Like, oh, I, I wish I wasn't so fucked up, really. I mean, honestly, you know, uh, you know, I wish I wasn't smoking crack during vocal takes, you know, I mean, <laughs> those kind of things, you know, uh, you know, and it's funny because did you see that R. Kelly thing that uh, surviving R. Kelly? I did. did. I, I barely survived watching it. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know it was unbelievable. But I was working in the studio where they said, and now it kind of made sense, like they said, we're going to call this McDermott's crack room instead of R. Kelly's girl room. And I remember going like at the time I didn't know you know what that even meant. But then uh, my drummer actually, I just told me he's like, remember he had, like he walked in on R. Kelly like eating some fourteen year old girl's ass out or something. I was like, oh geez, I don't remember that. But uh, but yeah, that was all that was nineteen ninety nine maybe or something. But um, that was uh, yeah. I mean, I guess apparently it was he wasn't hiding anything. No. But yeah, that was an incredible series, man. That oh. was amazing. Yeah, it was. It was. That guy's got to go. It- it's also been a really weird week in the sense that, you know, R. Kelly and then Ryan Adams. I mean, hearing, hearing oh. that was, was really kind yeah. of a tough one to, to hear. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've all heard Ryan Adams stories, you know, I never heard the sexual element, but you know, the, you know, his, uh, you know, that he was an egomaniac and, and, you know, you'd hear stories and funny stories about, you know, he was just, you know, very full of himself. And uh, so whatever it, it, I wasn't shocked. But uh, it was kind of like, I can't, yeah, I can't believe he was so, you know, t- even him to say, uh, geez, people will think I'm R. Kelly, you know, like, right. you know, on the text. But yeah, that's kind of like, oh, dude, if you say that, you know, you don't say it unless you kind of on some level believe it, you know. That's right. That's right. How, yeah. Just out of curiosity, how hard did the darkness that you were embodying, how hard did that bump up against your your religious faith or your sort of knowledge or your thought process in terms of religion? Like, how did that, did those two really contrast with each other? They, oddly enough, I was able to manage them quite nicely, uh, somehow, like any good addict would. You, you, do you know that movie um, about, uh, with Robert De Niro called Mission? 
Oh, yeah. I'm getting another. Yeah. So I, I somehow saw myself as this De Niro character, like some kind of noble uh, servant on a mission of sorts and to debase himself, to go to the deepest, darkest places and then somehow resurrect herself and be, find salvation through the through the basement door uh, or the basement floor. Rather. Uh, that's kind of just how I, I saw it. And, and the fact that there were always great kind of very heated debate about God and Jesus and Buddha and uh, Muhammad, like in these rooms, it was, uh, it was actually quite spiritual uh, that, that level. You know, I mean, now looking back, it's like, yeah, you're all fucking drug addicts. But there was a great spirit of debate, and, uh, and I, I enjoyed that. Because, you know, being sober now, I don't have those debates anymore. And, uh, but, um, yeah, I, I was able to manage it. I, I, thought, I, was, I thought God was um, mildly amused with me, uh, was, was still, uh, in, like, he was still rooting me on. I, I thought I was a bit of a court jester in some way. How did the, the work change? In other words, when you got sober and you started writing, did you notice a change in the process? I, I didn't so much. Um, I wrote more uh, furiously. Like I was making up for lost time. Uh, there was a. I guess there was more of a flow to it. I think I was self-conscious for a while. But now I'm in a very. I'm just very workmanlike. I'm very Southside Irish Chicago work. You know, working class guy who gets up before his family to write in the dark room before you know the daughter wakes up and you know then the day gets away from you because you're a father. Uh, I, that's my, my time. That's my um, confessional, really, you know, is, is, is that dark room, you know, where, you know, you let the secrets out. Or, and, you know, but make no mistake that, you know, when you, when you just get on clean and sober, it doesn't mean that my mind isn't an addict. My brain isn't an alcoholic. I still have those very dark, depressive thoughts. I have the com- same compulsion. Uh, I think, you know, just when you're using, it just gives you, uh, you're at, gives you more of a freedom to act on those um, Entitlements. Uh, now I just I, I, I have a toolkit that I'm able to manage it. But uh, but yeah, that you know when people say what are you going to write about salad bars now, you know I'm like fuck you, man. Uh, you know I'm still I'm still I'm still an awful creature. You know to make no mistake. And now I'm even more aware of it. Um, but I you know I'm able to you know I don't try to hurt people and I don't walk around with a flamethrower anymore. Is your I mean your work ethic has always been good. I mean you you've been a very prolific writer and it seems to me like you've always had a really strong discipline in terms of your craft. Well, I, that's nice of you to say. Yeah, I mean I think I could have just done a lot more because I mean there would be strong long stretches where I would just literally just do drugs. You know for I don't know six weeks. <laughs> you know, like that's what you did. You know, and like, I don't remember writing a single song. I must have because, yes, because I put records out. I just don't remember any of them. Like for 620, I remember I got that album and I thought, I like this guy because we have the same haircut. That was the first thing. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. How? How? Yeah. No, I mean, it's, I I think that, uh, I I mean, it's funny because we... I'm the Jewish version of you because we we looked a, a lot alike at the time. You're you're far more handsome, but I, but I was like we look a little bit alike. So I started listening to you, and I was really impressed with just how fleshed out your vision was. And you know I'm a poet, and I was writing at the time, and and I knew what I wanted to be, but I wasn't there yet. And so for you to be 20, 21 years old and to land a deal with you know one of the biggest record companies in the world, that's yeah. no small Crazy. feat. Yeah, it was amazing. That's what you see. That led right into my like I'm a, I'm anointed, you know. That that led ultimately to a, a very addictive lifestyle because I thought this, you know, this is how did this even happen? You know, Brian Koppelman comes to Chicago. I mean, it was just all a miracle, and uh, so it was. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was, but you know, and you know yourself as a writer that you know there's a freedom with being young. You're not that self-conscious, really. I wasn't, at least, you know, I was just write, write, write. I didn't give it damn what anybody thought now you know it's a, that's a i'm still pretty good at not giving a damn that's for sure but um but you know sometimes you know that's that voice kind of you know was on your shoulder going don't write that don't write that you know <laughs> um so, so you know it's a, there's a freedom i, I miss that freedom of, and i would just pour out pages man i would just do the very dylan kind of sit down at a typewriter and i would just go with pages and scrolls and i heard kerouac wrote on a scroll so i'd get a scroll and write, you know, like, you know, it was just, you know, I was just a, a fiend, really. It was great. And I'm kind of almost back like that now. It's just like, I want it. I love the pages and I love to um, 
get the workout. And when I don't, my wife knows, and she's like, you haven't written in a couple of days. I'm like, why? <laughs> oh, yeah, because you're an asshole. Oh, okay. <laughs> I relate. You know, it's funny. I heard the Kerouac thing, too, and I was, like, writing. I was trying to write poems on a paper towel roll when I was in college. <laughs> I've done it, yeah. You know? Yeah. You know and I was, was like – There was a guy – there was a folk singer in Chicago, and, and dude, I was doing the whole fucking Dylan thing, like, where I would go to these, you know, I was, I don't know, 18, going to open mics and with, you know, sunglasses on with my copy of Howl, and, uh, you know, sit there and read, and people would be like, who's this kid, you know, like, and, uh, but anyway, there was, a, there was a folk singer named Chris Farrell there, and I was reading Subterraneans at one point, and I think I said, I'm not really getting into this book very much, and he's like, no, man, you got to sing that book, and I was like, you got to what? He's like, you got to sing it. It's, a, it's supposed to be sung. And I was like, really? And so he was, he kind of like grabbed my copy and kind of sang some of it. And I was like, oh, wow, man, that kind of makes sense. And of course, I was a kid and I believe anything an adult would say. But uh, it was kind of cool that Kerouac's, you know, narrative is supposed to be sung. It's more like musical. And I didn't know that. And I was kind of like, so I always read Kerouac a little bit like that now. And, uh, so uh, I don't know where I was going. I'm sorry, I'm rambling. No, no, I love I love Subterraneans too. It's one. I think it's one of his better ones. I never. Th- it is very musical. Yeah, I know. So it, now, I, now I want to go back and read it again. But, I know. Me um, too. It's 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 really yeah. got got some velocity to it. It's funny you mention that sort of that prolific period of being young and writing these long, expansive pieces. My. I would write these twelve-page poems, and I would go to this girl's you know dorm room. And I would say, I wrote you a poem and it was like 12 pages and I'd be like on page five. And I was like, oh, I totally, I think she's falling into this. And then she'd go, how much longer is this going to go on? <laughs> that is awesome. Wait, so here, my best story was about that. Uh, I fancied some girl and I wrote her a song and it was a three minute and 24 second pop song called like Hold Back a River before this other hit the song was a hit. And uh, so I, I made a, demoed it and put it on a cassette and I dropped it off at her doorman building. And I didn't hear from her for like, I don't know, like four days or something. I was like, oh, she didn't get it or something. So I finally broke down and I called her. Her name is Vanessa. I remember that. And so I said, hey, did you, um, did you, did you get the, the song from the doorman? She's like, I did. I did. And I was like, um, what did you think? She, I said, did you hear it? She's like, I, I, got, uh, I got through some of it. And I was like, some of it? <laughs> like, it's three and a half minutes. Like, it's not Tolstoy. I'm not, you know, okay. I was like, oh my God. I, I wrote you a three minute song and you couldn't get through the whole thing. Like, oh, oh, it's humiliating. Yeah, I can relate. That's exactly what I was going through. And also, like, if you, if you loved a girl and she didn't like your work, it was like a knife in the heart. It's over. That, that piece of work, like, you should work on it. No, it's over. I'm never going to, I'm never going to think about that again. You know, it just killed the, killed the work. Even oh, if yeah. there were some good points to it. Nah, so make no mention of it ever again. <laughs>
taking criticism no not terrible <laughs> terrible why are you gonna give me one no no <laughs> not at all that's amazing yeah no I, I brian compliment you know he was my guy we'd go you know and i i'd go from you know he'd say you know i don't think you know this song and i'd say you're clearly you're wrong you don't know what you're talking about to being angry i wouldn't speak to him for two days to then like three days after that starting to go maybe he's right to a week later going god damn it he's right you know that's kind of that was my process it would take me a week and then i'd call him again going yeah you know i, I yeah i hear you i hear you i know what you're saying you know so that was kind of it you know but it's hard you know how about with your wife does your wife offer criticism of your work uh, I, I, she does, and I think I'm a little, obviously, a little more open to it. Um, but you know, it's, uh, yeah, I, it's a, it's a bit very tricky terrain, you know, uh, to try to say. Have you thought about, you know, like, but she, you know, what she, what she was so great about is uh, vocals. She would just open the door. The kitchen was next to where I was recording, and I was kind of outside, and she would just open up and go. And, you know, I'd finish, she'd, I'd be in there singing and singing. And then, you know, she, she could only hear just me because I'd have headphones on just to me singing. And she'd just open the door and go, I don't believe you. And then shut the door. <laughs> I'd be like, what the fuck is, what the, you don't, you don't even know what you're talking about. Like, and then I'd be like, well, yeah. And then she'd be like, don't believe you. That's all she would say. Like when she just didn't buy it. And she was always right. I mean, she's a musician, right? She is. Yeah. She's a great, great songwriter. And, you know, we're very different, but uh, she's amazing. Yeah. I was talking to someone yesterday about the idea of it's, I think it's always good that artists are when they get married, I think it's really, I don't know. I, I feel like an artist marrying an artist is there's a built in understanding that just isn't there. Had you married an accountant? Right. Yes, absolutely. The accountant would say you'd probably have less fights with the accountants. Cause she'd be like, Hey babe, what do you think of this song? And she'd be like, yeah, it's great. Like my mom, I could write a song about having a threesome and killing two of the people in it. And my mom would go, Oh, that's so cute. Like she just didn't, she didn't get it. Yeah, mom, the guy kills two of the people. Okay. You know, and uh, so, the, you know, th there's something we said about that, but yeah, but the, you're right. Uh, there's a, there's a kind of a, you know, you're part of a club with, with somebody that does the same thing and knows the, the pitfalls and all that. Well, the accountant would also say to you, no more buying Rolling Stones t-shirts. You're over budget. <laughs> I know. I know. Dude. So I'm obsessed with getting the, this tattoo you tour t-shirt, which was like, well, whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm just boring myself now. Uh, but yeah, there's like two hundred dollars. I'm like, I can't. I just can't do it. But I keep searching for like, you know, there's the new the new ones that are you can get for like you know nineteen ninety nine. But I don't know, having the vintage eighty one tour shirt. Damn. 
was a hell of a tour too. I remember that tour. I know. Um, that changed my whole life, yeah. Did you see that tour? I did. That's what changed everything for me. I went, Keith oh, Richards. I want to be like him. You know, I never wanted to be the singer. I never wanted to be Mick. It was always about being Keith. So I, you know, I would just be a guitar player in all the bands growing up and then you know, the singers would just never show up. And so I, as the guitar player, I'd start having to sing and I'm terrible. And, but you do it long enough because, you, you know, every singer just after a week gets laid and leaves the band. You know? <laughs> so, so that was, you know, they just, you know, and you just become the singer in absentia, you know. Who, um, who opened that tour? Do you remember? The Neville Brothers in Chicago. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. They had headdresses and doing like that. And I was like, what is this? You mentioned your mom. How supportive were your parents of your early foray into into music? They were nervous about it, rightfully so. You know, I mean, a small town outside of Chicago. You want to do what? You know, and uh, so it was. You know, it was crazy, and they, you know, they weren't happy at first, but they, you know, and it was like, you know, they had kind of given me a certain amount of time to try it, and I think. My dad, the way he would tell the story was that, you know, two months before the time was up, I got a record deal or something like that. Uh, but I don't remember that. Uh, he, he wrote that down in his, like, bibliography. But, um, but yeah, so that was, uh, they, I mean, after, after that, my mom came to, like, every show. You know, I was like, Ma, you don't have to come to all these shows. And she'd want to be right up front. I'm like, Mom, you don't understand. I can't see you while I sing these songs. It was, it's just too, you know, you know, you got to get in the back. I'm like, do not let my mom come up to, towards the stage. You know, it was too weird. What was the plan going to be? Like, if, if it didn't work out, if the two months expired, what did your dad expect you to do after? What? Go, go to college. So so the funny thing is, I, so I, I thought, well, how do I get a record deal? Well, maybe I'll go work in a record store. So I went and worked retail. And then at one point, I had all these, these like, folk songs. And there was, like, an in, like, a, at WIA, like, the headquarters, they had metal church there for, like, a, you know, coming around shaking hands. So I took my my demo tape up and I gave it to somebody in metal church. I mean, the idea of that is the funniest thing in the world. Like, you know, I'm sure they did cocaine off it, like in the car ride back to the hotel, but like, Hey guys, would you like to hear some goofy folk songs? You know? Uh, <laughs> so anyway, that was, I guess the plan was to go back to school and do something. I don't even know. That's why I was even thinking about being a priest. Seemed like, you know, like I had a calling of some sort to, to you know, like probably, you know, you like guessing like you too, you know, you want to, change things you want to start a conversation you know and being a priest or being a professor or being a poet or a pop star or whatever you know uh you know it's that that drive to want to say something now 620 west surf isn't that right near is it near loyola or is it near uh what... it's not too far from loyola i mean it's by wrigley field kind of yeah you know and then loyola is probably another 15 minutes up the road so you had like college kind of looming. I mean, it definitely was something that must have been kind of like, uh, you know, something that was in the back of your mind. It was. I took a theology class actually at Loyola, uh, you know, just a one class. And uh, that was during the, you know, you know, going to open mics and all that. And, uh, so that was kind of, you know, I was feeling it out a little bit. How much of your of your Irish roots informed what you were doing and how, how in touch with you were were you with that ancestry? Well, I think it was more felt than anything. I mean, just this story, like my aunt was a great storyteller and she would tell these stories that, you know, would literally have people falling off chairs laughing. I mean, she was uh, a great storyteller. So I think that was certainly definitely a part of, 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 the, of the life, you know, and it's funny. There was a, there was a guy that runs an Irish store in town. And um, so he said, you know why the Irish and the Jews get along so well? And I said, no, why? He's like, we're people on the run. <laughs> and it's true. You know, we were, you know, it is, true. is like one of always, you know, being kind of kicked around and run out and no, you know, even the uh, coming to America with the, I know Irish, no blacks, no dogs, you know, right. at hotels and stuff. And, uh, you know, so, um, but yeah, so it was a, it's a cultural thing, you know, and, and that's why I, I, you know, my, my best friend, David Levine and Brian Gottman, who do that movie, uh, the TV show billions, you know, I was kind of in, it was a very easy transformation into living in New York and, uh, doing a lot of things, you know, and with hanging out and dinners with rabbis and all that. Like it's very, uh, it was a very seamless transition for me. I wore a high for a while, and uh, wow. they wore a Celtic, they wore a Celtic cross, and you know, I always said when I get married, I'm going to have a priest and a rabbi. But I was in Italy, so I, I was just only able to find a priest. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, 
That's the best I could do. And look at us. Look how well we're getting along. Another Jew and an Irish guy. I know. Guy. I know. I know. Totally. It's like the beginning of a joke. So this Jewish guy and an Irish, or Jewish poet and an Irish singer. Yeah. Walk into a bar. A Jewish guy <laughs> and an Irish guy are having a podcast. <laughs> what? Um, I love it. Just out of curiosity, your, you know, the iconography that you have always chosen in your songs is really specific. And, and I've always loved it. It's so novelistic and it's so uh, evocative. In terms of being attracted to uh, certain images and, um, and certain references, where did that come from? Did, were you reading a lot or were, was it just something you were attracted to organically? I think I, I think a little bit of both. Uh, I don't really know. You know, I don't know what, you know, how it is. It, you don't know how those images, like, like, kind of those templates, like, were almost there from, you don't even know how they got there, you know? Those certain things that just, like, come to life in your brain. And I have weird ticks in my brain. Like, I have deep, I have malfunctions in my brain where I have, like, almost, and I think I, I think it was reading Slaughterhouse 451, but I have this very weird time travel thing in my head. Where like I can li- I don't know and in in and now I meditate and there's a weird thing that happens when I meditate and and I feel that way with songwriting where it can I can really like Memphis is a place for me that is very I literally part of me still is concurrently living in Memphis right now you know it's just this weird um, you know it, and I I'm sorry I'm rambling now but you know they always they said that they think maybe a lot of the saints were actually schizophrenics. You know, and uh, and I think it makes sense that that they would be. You know, um, uh, it's something I, I need to look into more. But uh, it's it's a fascinating idea that that's you know they they were they were sainted, but at the time they were con- just considered just downright crazy. That they had actually mental illness. You know, I mean that's um, and, it, and there's another book called uh, that kind of it's uh, Matthew Fox maybe Thomas Fox Matthew Fox, but it, it was, I think it's called Sermon on the Mount where it talked about that maybe Jesus you know maybe he if he in fact he did walk on water he walked on water because literally he was just able to like he had a mental malfunction that was able to transcend the physical plane that it wasn't necessarily a miracle it was just like that you know that, you know how we use such a small portion of our brain right. but that he he had just more access to it and like literally I could walk on water I could actually do this you know like I could levitate or whatever it is you know that these things are are more explainable than the great mis- the divine mysteries or not you know what do you think it is about about Memphis? Is, is there a romance towards the, the music? There, and- there, there is. I think it's an elevation level. I think you're lower, like you're still, you feel more uh, like swampy there, you know? Yeah. And I think there was also a time for me that it was one of great hope. And, uh, and then, it, and also, uh, it clashed with things went south and, uh, you know, any, any city is always kind of a, you know, it's a man of weak moral fiber. Uh, any city can corrupt a man pretty easily, and I, I was just very corruptible. And, and uh, Brian and David, they took me out of Chicago at a time because I was going down, down, you know, I was going down fast. But they took me to New York. They took me to New York, and they set me up with a place there. But you know, I, t- you know, I, we joke later, like never take an idiot to an idiot's playground. Like don't take a like a sniveling, conniving drug addict to Manhattan and give him a place to live. You, you know what's going to happen. <laughs> you know that's that's not going to end up good. And uh, so it's uh, but there is there's these things. I think they're all, I think they're all earmarked because there were times of hope and I, where I felt um, a sense of belonging actually. And I live there still. You know, it's funny. It's it's, uh, it's an odd thing. How is in terms of in terms of travel now? You know, with your daughter, with your family, are you not willing to sort of disappear on the road for months at a time? Is that not something you want to do anymore? I don't, but I, you know, it's, it comes to where I have to, you know, and like, it's funny, like, be careful what you wish for. I, I would, t- t- to have had this, you know, to be wanted to go to Europe, through people wanting you there and you can't even, there, so many people want you there that you can't go, you, you have to split it up during three different trips. That's a dream of mine. But of course, you know, like the story of my life, it's like, oh, really? Like, this is so painful for me to leave them for, you know, three, three week periods. It's just brutal. You know, it's a, but, you know, we have to just financially. And, uh, you know, that's why people say, boy, you're, you're really touring a lot. Well, I, I have to. That's <laughs> how I make money. It's the only way I can support a life. You know, it's not like, you know, how long is this tour? Forever. It's, <laughs> what was, how long was that last tour? 
forever. It never stops. Yeah. You know, don't you understand? Like, it'd be like, hey, Bill, how's it going down at the office? Pretty good. How long are you going to work there? Forever. Like, dude, I have to go every day. You know, you know it's, it's, I'm, I'm lucky that I love it. So that's the only difference. You know? Yeah. It's, it's like a tour that lasts 35, 40 years. Yeah. It's going to go really until, you know, I'm in such terrible physical condition that I can't move. You know? <laughs> I mean, there are there. Are, I, I've spoken about this to some musicians in terms of like you know being a working musician, health insurance, just mortgages and things you know basic oh. life things. Those are tricky things to navigate. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and and I think that you know uh, it, was, it was easy being you know an addict and a you know just a you know the whimsical poet you know misfit. But, you know, that, that just, I, I played it out. And, you know, now I have people that I have, I'm responsible for. I'm like, wow, that'll, that'll straighten me out, you know. Um, so that, that's, that was, it's scary. But, you know, like, I, I, love, uh, I love a challenge. Now, you're, in terms of meditation, which you mentioned, that, that is sort of a, a yeah. quest for stillness. I, how, how, in terms of getting into that, were you able to take to it pretty easily or did it take some work? Took a lot of work. Yeah, you know, because like for TM, you actually go and learn how to do it, and it's a, it's a cool, you know, it's a intensive course, and you learn how to do it. And oh, you know, it's turning off that monkey brain uh, is just so difficult, and it's still hard. I mean, it takes years and years. I mean, you know, uh, it's it, it's still you still learn, and some days are good, and some days are bad. Some days you can't turn it off, and some days are great. You know, I just know also it's uh, it's like my mental maintenance. You know, I have to. Um, I have to do it. Otherwise, and I, you know, it's like going to the gym. You know, some days it's like, oh, kind of got to go meditate, you know, because it's 20 minutes and that's not a short period of time. You know, it's a commitment. So it's, you know, um, but yeah, it's great. I, 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 I recommend it for anybody, you know, like, you know, the, the, you know, there's 12 steps. And I say this, like, you don't need to be a drug actor or an alcoholic to use the 12 steps. I mean, all it is, it's just about, you know, being, you know, self-examination, you know, I mean, uh, you know, in silence is, you know, where you, where you confront those things, where you grapple with them. And I think, you know, and maybe why we are in this like age of anxiety to the extent that we're, we're living in, you know, silence can be nourishment, but you know, you're never alone. There's solitude. I heard uh, Ezra, Ezra Klein had a podcast about this guy the other day talking about nobody has solitude anymore. And Ezra Klein, I, you know, he's a writer, a journalist, but he said, you know, cause you know, you're on the phone, you're listening to a podcast you're watching TV, you're tweeting, you're there's never, even when you're reading, when you're reading a book, you have someone else's brain in, in, in yours. There's never a time where you don't have somebody else's thoughts, somebody else's tweet, somebody else's music. There's ne you know, even reading a book out in the wilderness, you, you're, that's not solitude necessarily by definition, because you're having somebody else's thoughts. To sit and stare at your refrigerator and have a cup of coffee is something no one does anymore. You know, because then you have your phone, you're flipping through Facebook or whatever. And uh, but just to stare and be bored, n nobody does. How? So I mean that's yeah. I mean you you said before could I have written six twenty by surf then like no be I I you know because we, we would have been on Facebook you know or whatever you know right. like I mean all of us are you know be bored that's where the great you know that's, that's where the ideas come from like being alone with your thoughts, which people are terrified of of doing now. Oh my, scary shit. Yeah. yeah, it it can be. It can be very scary. Yeah, yeah. Um, how how hard are you on yourself uh, in terms of artistically and personally? Are you do you hold yourself to a standard where you're always? Um, I mean, are you someone who is hard on yourself? Oh, very, yeah, very. And I I think it's, it's James El Elroy. Is that right, James Elroy? He yeah. Said, he had a great quote that I he's like I I, I judge my. Uh, what is it? Uh, I, wish, I won't be able to get this right, but it's a, I judge myself harshly as I judge others. Like so, uh, you know, or it, maybe it starts with yes, I judge you harshly, and I judge others harshly, but not more harshly than I judge myself. And I and I'm I'm okay with that. So if you're willing to judge me, then judge on, motherfucker. But that's just the way it's going to be. Something like that. It's not. Uh, he said it much uh, better than that. But yeah, no, that's the I'm the, the hardest critic, you know. And it's so funny that this album orphans which literally are songs that didn't, I didn't think were good enough to make uh, Willow Springs or Out From Under, it's getting more notoriety than the songs, than the two albums I put the good stuff on. It just goes to show you how little I know and like how, you know, my perspective is not even correct. You know, like that people are really enjoying this album of outtakes way more than the other albums. 
which is crazy to me. Does, I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, that must play with your head a little bit because it's sort of like I thought that I, I was like, you know, a, a, a worthy arbiter of my of my own output. Exactly. Exactly. I apparently know nothing. And that's okay. But I so like who do I next record? Um, I'm going to need to take a you know, have a, a group uh, take it. What do they call those? Like group. Uh, Boats or whatever, you know, like when they test run the commercials, like right. have people in a, te- a test group. Yeah. How does this song sound to you? Rate it from one to five, please. Okay. And then, you know, like, <laughs> Jesus. What do you think the songs on Orphans, like what's the through line do you think that, that people are responding to that, that maybe you didn't initially respond to? I don't know. I think it's, I think it's what we were talking about earlier that I think there are less verses. I think they're more concise. I think they're more uh, self-aware, less, less self-aware. I think that's what it is. And that's, I mean, I'm kind of like, oh, I get it. So I put the, the very fancy songs on these other albums that people were kind of, you know, like enjoyed or whatever, but weren't jumping up and down about. But then I uh, hear these other ones that I didn't even really give a lot of time to. I wrote them more quickly. Like I didn't go back and rewrite and rewrite and re, re-sculpt. I just kind of, eh. These are, you know, whatever. I'm, this is never going to make the album. Because, you know, pretty soon into recording, yeah, it's not going to make it. So they were just a bunch of leftovers, you know. So that's, I think that's what it is. Like, I should just maybe stay out of the way a little more. I mean, easier said than done, right? Yeah, absolutely. All you do is tinker and tinker and tinker. And, oh, that line doesn't ring right to me. And that doesn't ring true to me. Uh, you know, so just write it and leave it alone. You know? But, like, Stephen King just rolls through these things. He writes... Six hours a day, puts out a book, it seems like, every six months, and he moves on. You know, it's like the shark mentality, which I kind of have now. It's just going to keep moving. What do you think Stephen King saw in you so early on that you, that you didn't see in yourself? I don't know. I don't know. I think, it, I think a sense of trouble because, you know, he was an addict, too, and he knew all about it. And, you know, any good alky knows another one. And um, I, th- I don't know. I think there was, there was always a hint of, uh, of uh, uh, I don't know, it's, I'm trying to think of what he heard up to that point. I think, yeah, he heard the first two records. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't think that those weren't terribly dark, but, I mean, there were a couple, there was a murder, a couple of murder songs on there, so maybe that was it. I don't know. I mean, he, he said it spoke to him. I think it was also the timing of it all. I think where singer-songwriters, it was a very dead kind of art at that time. It was, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all that. So I think this kind of just it kind of harkened back to a different time, maybe. I don't know. Did you maintain a friendship with him? Uh, somewhat, yeah. He, we speak uh, rarely, but we, uh, you know, email on occasion, and and uh, but yeah, lovely guy, you know. Uh, but and he, you know, he it, it would always admit like I'm not a very good, you know, you know, like he's just got so many people. I think, um, you know, he, it's hard to maintain friendships with somebody that famous and that kind of, you know, he's always just doing something new and on to the next thing. Do you see um, artistic impulses in your daughter? I do somewhat. Um, I, but, you know, again, it's just getting her to focus on, on things that, uh, to, to work at things, because she's very quick, you know, just like, oh, why don't you work on that? And she gets very offended. <laughs> so it's, it's like, I, I get all those emotions that we just ran through that, you know, like, you want to work quickly, you want to move on to the next thing, and you don't like criticism. I get it. I am. <laughs> but, uh, however, like, I'm trying to, you know, uh, so, yeah, so somewhat. Somewhat, I, she's you know she's quit piano lessons a couple times, which is you know. But we we have this attitude that you can't force them, you know. Just like and and quite frankly, to to be a musician, you know, like when I first, when she was first born, I was like, I do not want her being a musician. But as she gets older, I kind of like I think it would be lovely, you know, to be able to create something, you know, in this world somehow. You know, so I, I I'm rooting for her, whatever she wants to do, really. To, and it'd be kind of cool also if if she played with you. I mean, it'd be pretty cool if you guys. You know, like I, I was, oh, yeah. I was seeing how there's like, you know, Kevin Haskins from Bauhaus plays in a band with his, with his daughter. She's the bass really? player. Oh my god! Right? Oh like, wow! Really? Yeah. Yeah. And Chris Whitley did that too, I think. With yeah. Chrissy Whitley. Yeah. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah, it'd be weird. I think thinking about it, uh, but yeah, it'd be, it'd be amazing. Well, I mean, it might be weird if she says, "Dad, let me give you a note here. I think you're missing the." <laughs> right. <laughs> right. No, no, no. You're playing it all wrong. Yeah. I'm not feeling it. (laughs) I I don't believe you. I don't believe you. (laughs) Um, You know, I've always wanted to chat with you, man. And I'm, 
And I got to say, you're the first guy I've ever interviewed who actually mentioned Samoan gun runners, then quoted Hawthorne. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, thank you, I think. Yes. I I mean, if you're going to talk to anybody about Samoan gun runners and uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Michael McDermott is your guy. Uh, what a sweetheart of a guy. Really, really nice character. And uh, I'm sure he has more stories to tell, uh, but I got out of him what I could in an hour. So uh, we'll have him back on the show and, uh, and hear more stuff. In the meantime, go see him live. Go buy his music. Buy merch. Go to his website, michael-mcdermott.com. Uh, that'll do the trick. And you can't buy my albums, but you can buy my books. Go to alexgreenonline.com for all information about things that I do. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Ember's Editor. Follow me on Instagram, Ember's Podcast. And if you want to email me, do it, editor, at stereoembersmagazine.com. Now, the podcast is available on Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. And if you find yourself wandering around iTunes, please subscribe to the show and uh, give us some stars, five if you got them. Okay, and while you're there, please subscribe to Bombshell Radio. It means the world to us. Think about that for a second. You click a button, and we get super happy. We'll work that out in our therapist's office. You just keep clicking. Now, I'll be back next week. Thank you, as always, for listening. Let's close things off with Michael McDermott, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Thank you very much.
got people from all over the United States, all over the world. We got them from Idaho, from Long Island, from New Jersey, from New York, from Italy, from Texas, from Wisconsin. Thank you for coming. Have you ever looked at your face so much until it became askew? Cause the road that's less traveled So one of these right back to you And Lord, I'm frightened for I fear That my lack of life, it is my crime Thank you very much.